Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, uh, first and foremost of all, for the word that you have given to us. But God, we know that apart from the work of your Holy Spirit through your word, it will mean nothing. It will sound like the teacher off of Charlie Brown, just a bunch of wah, wah, wah. But we are asking, O God, that you would be gracious to us as your people and that your spirit would take the word that is preached today, that you would apply it to our hearts, God, that you would use it as a mirror to hold up, that we might see the true condition of our hearts and the hope that we have only in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your graciousness to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, last week as we closed the worship service, we sang that great hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And as comforting as I think that these words can be that God does not let us go, there may be times when we are tempted to wish that God would let us go. Uh, there are moments in life when God's pursuit of us, as, as one person put it so well, seems like that of a persistent mosquito constantly buzzing around our heads and causing us pain and we are utterly powerless to shake him off. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like that or not, but especially maybe if you're, you're in a position in your life where you're not walking with the Lord and he doesn't let you go, it can uh, sometimes seem like that buzzing mosquito. Well, I think certainly for Naomi, she was thinking of God in those terms as we look at the these, the second half of the, the book of, or the first chapter of Ruth this morning, you know, having departed from the promised land with a husband and two sons to go and to the greener fields of, of Moab, she had left, uh, you know, just excited probably, I'm guessing, about the future and the prospects there, but then was utterly bereaved as uh, not only her husband, but her two sons died. Mo- Moab was no longer a viable place for her to live and so she had really had no choice but to return to 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 Israel and there was food at last in Bethlehem and perhaps she thought well I could at least eke out a living here even though I don't really have a husband to provide for me maybe even as a widow I could do that but what about her daughter-in-laws that were with her what would should come of them well at first they they travel back together to Judah And uh, while they were on their way, Naomi thought that it was far better for these women if they would go back to their parents and to their houses and to their people to live on the charity of their own people and to find new husbands uh, for themselves. We see that in verses 8 and and following. But the daughter-in-laws refused to leave Naomi. We see that in verse 10. There was such a love that they had for their mother-in-law, which is a, a great thing to see. Uh, that they wanted to stay with her. But, but Naomi reasoned with Orpah and with Naomi in verses 11 and following, you know, and said, look, you need to return to, to Moab. And, and she gave them reasons why they should do that. And, uh, of course, Orpah then listened to that logic and, and agreed to that. But Ruth would not let her mother-in-law go. And so uh, Naomi persuaded Uh, or sought to persuade Ruth further, but Ruth would have no part of it. And so they returned to Bethlehem. And and, uh, as they did, we we see that that they were greeted by the people. But I want us to look at this this morning to to understand that the return journeys of each of these three women 
uh, really featured here more than just a biographical sketch of the lives of these three ladies. They help us to even read our own hearts and our own lives more honestly in the sight of God. You know, in fact, the stories of Orpah and, and Ruth and Naomi here epitomize three very different but very common responses to the Lord, especially in His sovereign providential dealings with us, and particularly when we're going through suffering and hardship. And so, in Orpah, we might say that we have a picture of the almost believer. Okay, so Orpah is uh, sort of characterizing the almost believer. Whereas Ruth is a picture of the new believer. And then Naomi, finally, is the backslidden believer. Now, I shared that outline with my wife early this week. And without even thinking, she says, Oh, so you're talking about the bailer, the bold, and the bitter. And I was like, What? And she goes, Well, the person who bails, and then the person who's bold, and the person who's bitter. And I thought, Wow, that's a great description. I should have thought of that. So whether you want to think of the almost believer, the new believer, and the backslidden believer, or you want to think about the bailer, the bolder, or the bitter, it doesn't really matter. But it's all the same. But I want us to look at each one of these this morning. And, and also, I, I'm just praying that the Lord, the Holy Spirit, would open our eyes to see our own hearts and our own lives and to see where they are in relation to these things. So let's look at all, first of all, to Orpah's story. Orpah was uh, fond, as I said, of her mother-in-law, Naomi, but Naomi wanted her to see that, you know, she wanted her to use not just her heart in following Naomi, but also to use her head as well. And so Naomi reasons that to go to Judah would not be an improvement on the circumstances for Orpah, or for Ruth, really, for that matter, that Naomi could not provide for them, you know, uh, husbands that, that they needed. And, and, and even if Naomi, she says, I'm too old to have a husband, but even if I did have a husband tonight and, and I got pregnant and I had a son, are you going to wait for the, these little babies to grow up and you're not going to marry and wait and, and until then? And, you know, because she knows that their best hopes of a, a better life and finding new husbands for themselves would be if they returned to their own people. And uh, so Orpah listened to that. And, and she was, we, I think she was really challenged by Naomi's words. And so she looked at her situation in life. And using the logic of Naomi, of what option would give her the most comfort and the most security, uh, she turns back to Moab and to her people and to her gods. But we read in verse 15 that... But they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and then she left and she went back to Moab. So Orpah started the journey, but she didn't finish it. But, uh, you know, that all comes at a cost. Orpah rejected the road to uncertainty and difficulty, but at the same time unknowingly turned aside from the one road that could have led her to a life of lasting significance and meaning. The world's wise choice to avoid of life and obedience to God leads in the end to a kind of oblivion, if you would. And maybe there's some that may be here today that may be on a journey like that from Moab to Bethlehem. You have heard how the Lord has visited his people 
and you have turned your backs on the world and you have chosen to come and to follow Christ and you have been those who have walked alongside others who have chosen to do the same. But the truth is, is that when the prospects ahead looked hard and the real cost of making the journey became plain, then maybe those that you walked with soon turned back. Maybe they did not follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that has challenged your heart and you've wondered really what you were going to do. I like the words of the Puritan Matthew Mead. He wrote, There are very many in the world that are almost and yet but almost Christians. Many that are near heaven and yet are never the nearer. Many that are within a little of salvation and yet shall never enjoy the least salvation. They are within sight of heaven yet shall never have a sight of God. You know, there are people who, you know, uh, that maybe even hang out with God's people and yet they don't know the Lord. And maybe you're here today and because you love your husband or you love your wife or because of your parents or maybe a friend, you follow Jesus and you're deeply committed to come to church and stuff merely because you love those people. You honor them a lot like Orpah did with Naomi, her mother-in-law. But if all of your love is a love for them, for family, but you have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ himself, then the reality is, is that you will turn back when those times become difficult and hard. And kids, I want to speak to you this morning, okay? Because I know that it can be such that, you know, you can come to church because, guess why? You have to come to church, right? Your parents come to church and they're not going to leave you home by yourself. And so you have to come to church. But I want you to challenge yourself and to think, do I only come to church because my parents make me or because I really love the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, if my parents would stop going to church, would I still want to come to Kirk of the Plains? Would I still want to come and to be part of this body? Now, parents, you may be here this morning and you may see in your kids sort of a coldness towards the Lord. You may see in them uh, a heart that's probably drawn more towards the world and the things of the world than the things of God. And that, that may grieve you, and, and I can understand that. I really can. But as your pastor, I also want to encourage you as parents that that may be a blessing of the Lord. And you may say, what? A blessing? Well, a blessing in this sense, that God is allowing you to see the condition of the heart of your child even now so that you can pray for him or you can pray for her. You know, I think how sad it is sometimes as parents, you know, I think sometimes we can see our kids struggling with the Lord. And, you know, we're in a church body and you see all these other families and their kids seem to be doing okay. And you're just feeling like a failure as a parent. And you're just thinking, oh, what have I done wrong? You know, and everything looks so good. But I want to tell you, I think sometimes it's good to see that in your kids so you can get on your knees and you can pray. And maybe even the Lord would open up somebody else in the congregation that you see that they have a similar struggle. And you can meet with those parents as well and you guys could pray for your children. And maybe you could confine in some others in the church that could pray for your child as well. I think how sad it is when our families look so good 
Because you know what? We want to look good in front of each other as a congregation who looks so good on the outside and yet their kids don't know the Lord and they grow up and everything looks so good. And then when they get to be teenagers, they go off to college and they have nothing to do with God when they're on their own. And when the reality is, you look at that and you say, what happened? Oh, I bet it was a liberal professor that convinced them that Christianity is not true. When the truth of the matter was all along, those kids never followed the Lord. They just knew how to fake it on the outside. So if God is allowing you to see the heart of your child, even now, thank Him for that and pray for your child. And we want to pray for you as a church and pray for your child as well because we have committed at their baptism to assist you in raising that child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And what about you young person that is here? Are you the same in front of your unbelieving friends as you hear are on Sunday morning? Or even us as adults, I guess we could ask the same thing. You know, is it the same way or are we living a life of duplicity? You know, are we, are we living in known sin and then looking so pious here on Sunday morning? You know, Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 5, he said that, you know, people like this, like Orpah, these are people whose hearts will be like the seed sown on rocky soil. It immediately springs up, but since it has no depth of soil, the sun sun soon scorched it, and because it has no root, it withers. You know, you are the one... Jesus says, who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet because you have no root in yourself, though you endure for a while, when tribulation and persecution arises, then you immediately fall away. And I think it's even good for us to look at this as adults and to ask ourselves, do I have the joy of the Lord? Or is that something that's in the past? Is that something that at one time, I really loved the Lord Jesus Christ? It was like... He was everything to me. I would give up everything to follow the Lord. But now my heart is very cold. Yes, I come to church. Yes, I sing the hymns. Yes, I do these things. But my heart is not there. Jesus is not my first love. There is a sense of waning in my heart. You know, don't be like the rich young man who came to Jesus in Matthew 19, 22. And after speaking with Christ and being confronted by Christ with the cost of discipleship, he went away sorrowful because his possessions were so great. The cost of following the Lord Jesus may just seem like too much. And the lure of Moab or the world may seem very strong. And it may be that turning your back on God is, you know, is even working relevantly well for you. You know, you may be... Giving you, it may be giving you a measure of the things that you wanted. Maybe you have been successful and you've had a family. You've been respected by others. Maybe there's a great sense of comfort and security in your life. But like Orpah, the one thing you will miss out on, the one thing of true value in life, is a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one and the true God. And we don't know what happened to Orpah or how things worked out for her and whether she found what she was looking for. You know, and in one sense, it doesn't really matter because she missed the pearl of great price and failed the true, to find true peace in Jesus Christ. And what's so sad about Orpah's story is, is that most likely she never even knew what she really missed. So there's Orpah, but then there's Ruth. You know, in verses 15 through 17, we see sort of the account of Ruth. 
And if Orpah is the almost believer, then Ruth becomes a new believer, doesn't she? Uh, Naomi seeks to dissuade Ruth as well as Orpah, but, but Ruth stands her ground. And then she, she says those words that we hear all the time at weddings. You know, I sort of wonder why we say it at weddings. But anyway, but we do. They, they oftentimes say these words at weddings. In verses 16 and 17, Ruth says to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now, look at those statements. You know, each one of those statements sort of ratches up a level of her commitment, just a, another notch. It just sort of says, you know, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to follow you. Ruth, she's not just, you know, relocating to a new home. She's committing her life and her soul to Naomi. And even more so than to Naomi, she is committing her life to Naomi's God, whom she calls as a witness by his personal name, the Lord or Yahweh. So Ruth throws herself on the mercy and the favor of God of Israel and steps out in faith to follow him. And as outsiders, all of us have done the same as well. We must approach God knowing that we have nothing to offer him but our emptiness. Now, notice the language that Ruth uses. It really echoes the language of God's own covenant promise to Israel in Exodus 6 and 7. In Exodus Chapter 6, verse 7, God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so then now Ruth says, you know, sort of taking and turning God's promises around, she declares, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. So do you see what she's doing? She is taking God's covenant for her own. She is identifying herself with those whom God has redeemed. Your people are mine, and your God is my God. Now, this is no small step for Ruth. You know, remember that Ruth has uh, faced all the discouragement that Naomi has thrown at her in her path. Ruth knows that, humanly speaking, there's really very little prospect of a bright future ahead for her. She's watched her sister-in-law leave, and so she's really lost all hope of recovery in one sense. And, and Ruth knows that the road ahead is bleak if it continues, if she continues to travel to, to Bethlehem. You know, I mean, because she is a foreign woman. And she knows that the Israelites are not supposed to marry foreign women. But one thing I forgot about last week as I was preaching this, I, and I just want you to, to see the perspective that the Israelites had towards Moabites. In Deuteronomy 23, you can write this down, Deuteronomy 23, 3 and 4 This is what the Lord says to his people. He said, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pathor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. And so when Ruth did come back to Israel with Naomi, it says in verse 19 that they, the, the, the women were like, 
Is this Naomi? They didn't even acknowledge that Ruth existed. And yet Ruth still committed herself to go and to be there. The only explanation that can account for her determination to make this journey is is that her heart had been changed. She had been a convert to be a believer in God. So she was not just a Moabitess anymore, even though that's the designation that's given to her throughout this book. She actually was a believer in Yahweh. And so she has been saved by grace and by grace joined to God of Israel, whose covenant name she used in verse 17. And so Ruth, like all new believers, knows that there is a cost to following Jesus. And to follow Jesus means to take up our cross. And to take up our cross means constantly dying to our own self-interest. Putting the needs and desires of others first, whether or not they respond in gratitude or not. It means pouring out our lives for others and following our Lord and our God. And when we take up our cross, brothers and sisters, all we're simply doing is following Jesus to where he leads us. Because that's where he always takes us, is back to the cross. Because he was the one who was rejected by the people that he came to serve. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. It was at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that he went to glorify his Father and to purchase a people for himself. You know, in in John chapter 6, Jesus is teaching the crowds. And John records that the people heard Jesus' words and they said, your heart, your sayings are hard, Jesus. And it says that after they listened to Jesus, many decided that they could no longer follow him. And so many left. He lost his church. You know, talk about church split. You know, most of them took off. And so then Jesus then turns to the twelve after the almost believers left. And he says, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him in words that I think even Ruth herself could have spoken. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The Lord Jesus has the words of eternal life today as well. And he is asking those of us who profess to follow him, do you also want to go away? Will you also turn back? Now, For us, it may not be that we quit coming to church on Sunday morning. We may still come to church on Sunday morning, but we may turn away from the Lord by living that life of duplicity. Where we might look good here on Sunday morning, but during the week we are following the ways of the world. We're following the ways of our desires. And so, unfortunately, oftentimes that duplicity and that sense of turning from the Lord really never shows itself, at least not here in church on Sunday morning? Or are we like Ruth and do we take God for our God and God's people for our people? Do we recognize with Simon Peter that there is nowhere else to go? And then third and and finally, we come to Naomi, the bitter one. And Naomi knows the Lord and and we see that in verse 8 as she gives this great benediction. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt kindly with the dead and with me. And what she's using there, when she says deal kindly, she's using the word chesed, which means God's covenant faithfulness, His covenant love and mercy, that special market relationship between God and His people. And God shows chesed to His children. Now, the New Testament equivalent to that, the closest we probably we can get is God's grace. 
God gives grace to his people, binding himself to them and they to him. And that's what Naomi pronounces upon her daughter-in-laws, which sounds very pious until you really read what she's saying. She said, may the Lord bless you as you go back to... Now, I'm adding here, okay, just to explain so you can understand this. As you go back to your pagan people who rebel against God and you follow your false gods, may the Lord bless you. And you go, what? But that's really what she's saying. You know, you can sort of see where the spiritual condition of her heart is. As you look at verse 13, Naomi says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. That's how she views God. That God's hand has been against her. That's how she reads her circumstances. She believes in the sovereignty of God, all right, but she no longer accepts God's sovereign as, as acts as good. She does not see God as a good God. And so when she arrives at Bethlehem and the local women rush to meet her, this is how she responds. She goes, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Lord or for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? See, it's important for us to note that when Naomi comes back, she is not broken and not repentant at all over her Moabite experience. She may have been returning to the land of Israel, But she was not exactly returning to the Lord with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. She's sort of the antithesis, sort of the opposite, kids, of the prodigal son. She returns, but not humbly. And so Mara, which was bitter, was exactly the right name for Naomi. Not only because it described her attitude, but because the name has uh, a history with it as well. If you know your Old Testament, kids... Uh, If you remember, God's people rebelled because they perceived that God wasn't meeting their needs. And it was at Mara, the same name that Naomi took for herself, in the wilderness on the way out of Egypt that the children of Israel grumbled against the Lord because they wanted something to drink. You can see that in Exodus 15.23. And that was only a couple of days after the Lord had parted the Red Sea and delivered the Israelites from their, the Egyptian enemies. And so like her ancestors, Naomi's heart was angry with God for the way her life was turning out. She was experiencing the pain of life in the desert and she felt that the judgments that had fallen on her were all God's fault. It was all God's fault. She feels that God was somehow out to get her. She could see providence clearly enough, but she couldn't see God's grace in the midst of his providence. All she knows right now is hurt and pain. And so she sees the Lord as the one who, in verse 21, who has testified against her. In other words, that he's called her to an account in his courtroom. And so she blamed God for the things in her life that had gone wrong. And she felt justified to blame him because Naomi thinks herself innocent and that God is the one who is unjust. Brothers and sisters, don't we have that struggle sometimes? As we look at the circumstances of our lives, and particularly as one difficult thing upon another, upon another, upon another, sort of like waves on the beach sort of splash up upon us, we can feel that way. At this point, there is no whisper in Naomi's heart 
of her own responsibility in choosing a path of disobedience that led her away from the promised land in the first place. Naomi was simply resentful that the greener pastures of Moab, that her plans didn't work out the way that she wanted. How often are we like Naomi when the circumstances of life go badly against us? We are tempted to assume that it's because God's out to get us. I mean, don't we sort of view God sometimes as a sort of a, a, a cosmic policeman? You know, that he's sort of by the, the highway of life and he's just waiting for an opportunity to pull us over and to give us a ticket. And when life is, is hard, even when the difficulties are a direct result of our own sin, we swiftly attribute our pain and our loss to God. I don't care whether it's uh, closed doors, maybe on a career path that we had, maybe whether it's financial difficulties, maybe it's a relationship that has gone bad. Our first resort is often to blame God for his harshness, for our pain. And the result of that attitude in our hearts may be that our lives become filled with such bitterness that we completely miss God's providential signs of his goodness to us, even in the midst of our difficulties. Like Naomi, we may be so busy complaining about our emptiness that we miss the fact that God has emptied our hands only in order that he might put in our hands something much better. You know, we are so prone to follow after trinkets and miss the true treasure, are we not? You know, I think of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not to be too strong, but to be too weak. He describes us, C.S. Lewis describes us even as Christians, that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he can't understand what it means to have a holiday. That is, kids, a vacation at the, at the beach. So we're, he says we are far too easily pleased. So what happens is, is that God sometimes takes away the things that have become too precious to us because they are supporting us in our life of sin and hardness of heart towards him. If we are his children, he loves us. And through this loss, he wants us to receive something that is much more precious than all the trinkets that might capture our hearts. And that is him, himself, a relationship to him. So why do we find this truth so hard to understand? You know, why do we so often miss the small signs of God's goodness to us in the midst of our pains? And why do we so often jump to the conclusion that when things are hard, that God is, is opposing us? Why is it that it's so difficult for us to see that he is really trying to clear the way that we might find our satisfaction in him and in him only? Brothers and sisters, uh, as a result of the covenant bond of our union with Jesus Christ and his people, no one and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jesus Christ died on the cross both as the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us as his people and as the ultimate means by which God would bring all of his prodigal sons and daughters back to him. And though we have each gone astray like Naomi in search of bread that does not satisfy, God has not simply cut us off in his anger, in his wrath as we deserve. 
And though the Lord could have dealt bitterly with us. And brothers and sisters, think about it. Think about it this week. Think about the times when your heart has strayed away from the Lord. That you have functioned more as a backslidden believer. And you have sought after the things of the Lord. And how His wrath should come upon us. But instead, what did He do? He poured out that wrath that is meant for us. He poured out that wrath upon His only Son. And Jesus Christ took that wrath that was due us. And in light of that tremendous gospel reality, how can we doubt God's love for us? How can we ever doubt God's desire for our best? Though He takes us through the deep waters of pain and suffering and loss, it is only so that He may break our fascination, as C.S. Lewis says, with making mud pies. Because he wants instead for us to have a vacation at the beach. You know, but God also wants us to see that the gospel is for all the nations. You know, it's, it's very convicting that Ruth, who is a, a, a pagan, is more passionate for Israel's God than even the children of the covenant who have heard of the dealings of God with his people for, for years and years and years. And perhaps those of us who have grown up in the church can easily lose sight of the awesome preciousness of the grace of God and cease to be amazed at His love for us. It's because maybe we're too familiar with it and it loses its freshness, whereas those to whom this is new news are more easily moved by it. But whether we grew up in the church or were converted as adults, can we be content to have only a little passion for our God and for the spread of his fame. Brothers and sisters, how glorious it is that we have opportunities to share the gospel to those who don't know God. God has put us in a, in a mission field, in essence, right where we're at, to be part of the harvest and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it may be that our hearts are too much like Orpah's hearts, that we are an almost believer. Or it may be that our hearts are too much like Naomi, where we... Are backslidden. And so we find ourselves not only not telling people about Jesus Christ, but actually pointing them back to whatever choice they want. I mean, when, when, the, when were the words last come out of your mouth that said, well, you know, yeah, I understand that, but that, I believe this. You know, I mean, yeah, I understand that's what you believe, but I believe this. And we don't share the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We just sort of make it sound like all religions are on the same level or on the same plane. Not understanding that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. And I pray that God may cause us to believe in Him to the point to where we can go and we can boldly proclaim who He is and the claims that He has upon the world. May the Lord give us the heart of a Ruth that we may go and share the gospel with those that don't know Him. Amen? Let's bow our heads and have a moment of silence as we think about God's word. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we could hear your word preached today. And we know that you are faithful, that you will, no one can snatch us from your hand. And yet, Lord, we know, though, that even in the midst of life's 
circumstances that, that our hearts can demonstrate all of these characteristics. And we pray, Lord, that you would deal with where we're at. And God, that our, our love for you would be, or that your love for us would be exhibited in our love for you. Oh God, that if we are acting like the almost believer or the backslidden believer, that you would so deal with the sin of our hearts and call us back to yourself. Lord, that you might be our first love. God, that we would desire you more than anything. Oh Lord, please, 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 we pray this week that you would open our eyes to see truly where we stand with you. We thank you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.